You are Locked On Reds, your daily Cincinnati Reds podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome into your daily source for the Cincinnati Reds throughout the offseason. This is the Locked On Reds podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Carr. on Reds fans welcome in to the Locked On Reds podcast happy Monday hope you had a great Super Bowl Sunday shout out to former Bearcat Travis Kelsey as he wins his first Super Bowl as a player I picked the Chiefs so I'm pretty happy about that but overall welcome to the first month that we'll have baseball in it yeah I know it's spring training baseball but we have finally left the months without baseball we are now to the point of the year where the next month that doesn't have baseball in it is going to be november and that's just depending on if you know we don't go to like a long playoff series or anything like that but welcome anyway uh, on today's show i want to talk about rice Iglesias. i want to dive into him because i know that he's been getting lambasted over the offseason. I want to talk about our closer today. Also, we've got some Today in Reds awesomeness with Cam Miller coming up. But before we get to all of that, make sure that you are subscribed on the podcast platform that you're listening on currently. If you haven't already done so, hit that subscribe button. So real quick, before we jump into today's focus topic, let's do some news. News team assemble! So the news really isn't transaction-related. There's a couple of items that I wanted to point out. The Reds Hall of Fame and Museum is doing a special deal that with a paid uh, admission, you will get a free bobblehead during the month of February. So go to the Hall of Fame and you get yourself a bobblehead. I'm definitely going to take advantage of that sometime here this month. Also, if you haven't heard, the Reds are doing a lottery that you must register for for opening day tickets. They no longer do the the day where they sell opening day tickets at the ticket window where you go and you camp out and you wait and all that other stuff and you prove your fandom to everybody because you're okay with going and living in cold weather for 12 or 16 hours or whatever it is and just to wait for some tickets. No, you don't have to do that anymore. We're into the new age where the internet rules us all And you can check out the Reds opening day ticket lottery now through February 20th. It says February 20th at noon. So, you know, if you wake up on the morning of February 20th and realize, ah, I procrastinated and forgot, sign up for the lottery. Uh, The easiest way is just to Google it. I could give the URL, but there's like a lot of slashes and words that aren't words. So we're not going to do that. But you can register for the lottery on there. You can get up to four opening day tickets now they do it is a double play they call it the opening day double play tickets which means that you purchase opening day tickets and then you purchase the same amount of tickets for another home game during the season 
but you don't have to purchase them at opening day price. So you purchase them normal box office prices. But yeah, the double play ticket opportunity that's up now. If you look up just Reds opening day uh, ticket opportunity or something like that, uh, from it it opened on January twenty seventh, and it's open until February twentieth. I swear to God, I'm smart. So today's focus topic, and it's something that I, I know I have joined in the chorus of those that have piled on. I, and maybe, you know, he, you know, he does deserve it from his personality standpoint, but people can change, and so can their performances. And I'm looking at Rysel Iglesias. There have been many folks, and some of you know that I have started working as a producer at 700 WLW, there have been many folks call in on sports talk shows talking about who is going to close for the Reds. And I've seen it on Twitter. They're like, who's going to be the Reds' closer? At least as of opening day and, uh, you know, assuming health and all that good stuff, Rysel Iglesias is going to be the closer. Now, I know that you say, well, he was bad last year, Jeff. He wasn't good. Well, here's the thing. Yeah, sure, you can be like, oh, he had 12 losses, but I don't care about wins and losses. What I care about, he actually had some decent statistics. Now, you're going to say his 4.16 ERA wasn't that great, but when you look at his predictors, his ERA predictors, the fielding independent pitching, I know I'm getting into sabermetrics and some of you hate that, but I don't care. I like it. His fielding independent pitching, according to Fangraphs, was 3.92. That's stuff that he can control. That takes out fielding factors, which was lower than 2018. Now, in 2018, he had an actual ERA of 2.38. So it's kind of weird how those predictors work because they're not always right on. But here's the, here's the thing for me that is encouraging. The fact that he is able to still miss bats. Dude can still strike him out with the best of them. He had an 11.9 strikeout per nine. For all intents and purposes, like 12 strikeouts per nine last year. And he kept the walks down. He actually walked less people than he did in two years prior. He had 2.8 walks per nine. The bugaboo, the thing that really bit him, was his pitches that were contacted by bats and got put in play. The batting average on balls in play against Rysel Iglesias was super high. His career BABIP allowed is 279. Last year, it was 316, i.e. 40 points higher, just about. It's like 37 points higher, but, you know, whatever, math. Almost 40 points higher. Plus, if you look at baseball savant, I know I'm throwing a lot of numbers at you here, but if you look at Baseball Savant, the launch angle, the average launch angle on all of the hits, or, you know, all of the batted balls that he allowed was greater than in any year of his career. The launch angle's 20 degrees. His previous high was 13 degrees. That's a big jump. A big jump. And, is, and the MLB average is like 11 degrees. So he was giving up a lot of fly balls. The batting average on balls in play was super high. So those launch angle, the high launch angles, all that stuff, those balls were landing. So he's giving up a lot of fly balls and 16% 
of those fly balls turned in home runs, which ballooned his ERA. Now, obviously, that's not a crazy percentage of fly balls that turned into home run, but he also got bit by the fact that in the previous, in fact, if you look at the previous three seasons, he had a better percentage of runners left on base than he did in 2019. In 2019, 78.9% of runners got stranded. He stranded 78.9%. So if there's anyone on base, you know, what's that? That's 21%. 21% of those runners scored. The year before that, 8% of the runners scored, like 8.4%, if you want to be super serious and super, you know, specific about it, but 8% compared to 21%, a huge jump in stranded runner percent. I mean, it's just massive differences there. The thing that I am encouraged by, though, I still go back to his strikeout and walk rate. His strikeout percentage was actually the highest it's ever been in his career at 31.9%, and his walk percentage was almost the lowest that it's ever been. It was at seven and a half percent. The lowest has ever been was seven point one percent in his rookie season. But I mean, that is a fantastic difference. And when you look at pitchers, that's the first thing that you look at because that's the first thing they can control: who walks and who strikes out, who's missing bats, who's not, who's missing the strike zone rather than missing bats. He's hitting the strike zone, and when he's not hitting the strike zone, he's inducing guys to swing and he's inducing them to miss. So I think he's going to be good. I think he's going to bounce back. The only thing we can't predict, obviously, is his mental state, which is what everyone belabors. They say, well, he's a jerk. He only wants to close and all this other stuff. And I've been the kind of guy that's harped on that before. You know, I've joined into the chorus of saying, well, if he's just going to be this way, then whatever. Maybe we should just trade him. And if he could get value. But I think the Reds probably explored that and didn't see any trades worth uh, noting. You know, I don't I don't think they made him untouchable, but I I also don't get the feeling that they were getting anything worth dealing. Rice of Iglesias, but he's talented. Right. If we just want to look at his base statistics, his normal stuff, when you look at pitchers, when you look at relief pitchers for the last three years before 2009, I'm not talking about 2000. I'm talking about 2016 through 2018. He had a total of 64 saves, 255 strikeouts, and he did so with an ERA of less than two and a half. We're not talking about a guy who was one and done. We're not talking about a small sample size. We're talking about a talented pitcher who can once again be talented. I have no doubt about that. It's just about his mental state. We'll see how that goes. But I feel like after this offseason, he is going to come back galvanized, ready to go, and we're going to have that closer that we thought we had after the 2018 season. Everyone's doubting him. And I know that I, I mentioned that, you know, I've said this before. Relief pitching is a fickle thing. Relievers come and go as, you know, day in and day out. But I think Iglesias has the talent, and he showed the numbers with his strikeout rate, his walk rate. He has, if you go to you know, Baseball Savant, all of his pitches are in the good area. They're not in like the great area, but they're in the good area, the good percentiles. I think we're going to have a pretty good closer on our hands, and he's going to be a lot closer to the 2018 Rice Iglesias than he was the 2019. 
Rice Iglesias. When we come back here in just a moment, I'm going to do some Today in Red's Awesomeness with Cam Miller. But first, spring training is almost here, which means Cactus League action is forthcoming. And if you're planning to get out to Arizona to watch the Reds and any and all other Cactus League teams, the best way to get out there is visit Arizona.com slash spring training. Arizona is the perfect home base for baseball fans because you've got 10 stadiums with 15 major league teams all within a 50-mile radius of Greater Phoenix. So you can get to everything. And on top of that, you've got awesome landscapes. I mean, Arizona is known for its outdoor adventures and national parks, lots of great places to explore. But when it comes to the game, I mean, spring training, everyone is so laid back. You can meet your favorite players, get some autographs, and then enjoy some baseball in some nice warm weather. If you're like me and you live in the tri-state area right now, you're freezing your bunions off, head out to Arizona, warm up, and watch some Reds baseball. Best way to do that, visit Arizona.com slash spring training. Go there and book your spring training excursion today. If you've been a listener of this podcast, I'm sure you've heard all the great advertisers working with Locked On to reach sports fans. But you may not know that the Locked On Reds podcast is a great way for your local business to reach passionate Reds fans just like you. Unlike any other podcast, Locked On gives your local company the unique ability to reach local podcast listeners. And not just any podcast listener, but a Locked On podcast listener. If your company wants to connect with Reds fans in a predominantly male audience that is well-educated with disposable income, then let's put your company right here on this Locked On podcast. Local fans love to support local businesses. Text the word advertising to 33777 or visit LockedOnPodcast.com slash advertising and let us know who you are. We'll get our team to help your team achieve Locked On Advertising success. Once again, text the word advertising to 33777 or visit LockedOnPodcast.com slash advertising. We look forward to hearing from you. In a world where baseball is more than just a game. Where conies are the preferred mode of nourishment. There stands a team. And that team is so awesome, it requires two fans to encapsulate its awesomeness. It is time for today in Cincinnati Reds Awesomeness. Alright, so for today's installment of Looking Back at Reds Awesomeness, we are on to the 1990 World Series champion, Cincinnati Reds. We've already looked at 1919 75 and 76 kind of group those into one episode. And today, 
which is kind of a bummer. This is the last team to have won a World Series for the Reds. Who knows? Maybe 2020 will get us back on that track. But uh, 1990 was a year, and I mentioned it kind of in the tease uh, last time, that uh, I believe Marty said was his favorite team to cover. And I know that there were so many personalities on this team, and one of the reasons that they were so fun but of course they had the man, Eric the Red, that almost is universally agreed upon as what could have been. I mean, what what did you see? Because I'll be I'll be straight up honest, I was like one year old whenever this happened, so I can't claim to have remembered anything that I saw. What did you see from Eric the Red back then? And just talk about how you felt about the way that his career developed after that. You know, 1990 is always a special team for me because I had moved uh, two years prior to that to South Carolina. My dad um, moved us, the company, he worked at Cincinnati Millicron, um, and then they were transferred, his plant was transferred to South Carolina, Greenwood, South Carolina, population four, and it was just me and my family. <laughs> so it was a small town where baseball wasn't the king. So I had to follow that team um, by the radio games you'd get at night. And I had to follow that team by the Cincinnati Post that would come in the mail two days later. So I would get all the box scores two days later. And, of course, ESPN wasn't like it is now, and, of course, the Internet wasn't around. So I didn't have that instant access. So I had to wait for my results to see what was going on, to really dive deep into the box store to see what was going on. But I already had a good idea of this team because of what Pete had built before that. And one of the players that I think that Pete benefited most was, was Eric Davis. His he was what the one player that every championship team needs a superstar. Now, Barry Larkin, I don't think, was a superstar caliber yet. Still young in his career. Eric Davis had been there since 84. So he, he knew, and he was under Dave Parker, the tutelage of Dave Parker before that. So he had this drive and determination. He was relatively healthy throughout that year. So he put it all together, and that's what you need, a superstar to put it all together. I mean, superstars can have off years and bad years, but you need your superstar to play above and beyond. And that's what Eric Davis did in 1990. Just his presence and him staying on the field. I mean, patrolling center field, you know, batting cleanup, doing, doing the things he needed to do to, to, you know, to be, to drive that team. Um, It was just an unbelievable thing to, to, to watch in the papers and on the highlights at three in the morning on ESPN 1990. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And, you know, I mean that, that year you had sweet Lou, managing the ball club. And I know that we always look back on all of his fieriness, but kind of speak to the way that he was around the team. Like what do the players say about him like he was behind closed doors? Oh, that's the thing about the, the, the reason why the Reds won. And people will say this. They will say, oh, Pete had that team. Won. No, Pete had that team and didn't win. Pete was a great, great manager, but he was not a great, great, great championship manager and the reason was he didn't have what Lou had Lou came in on day one and these guys had been become complacent there wasn't that drive they had just gotten over the night 18 you know the 1989 Pete Rose scandal finished in fifth place with that talent there was no reason for it and Lou came in and told him that day one you have the best team in this division what, what why is it taking so long for you guys to put together and he lit the fire that they needed and that was the type of manager we was. He wasn't a Bill McKechnie. He wasn't going to be a, a Connie Mack 
it wasn't going to be super genius. He was going to say, ball, bat, glove, get out there and get it. And if you didn't, you knew you were going to hear about it like Rob Dibble did in the locker room after one game. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he was a good manager as far as strategy. Yes, he did do pull the right strings. And, he, of course, he had the nasty boys. So, I mean, you can't go wrong there with Dibble, Charlton, and Myers. Three-headed monster. If you understand. Again, something else you'll never see again is that. Right. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you'll ever see a, a bullpen like that again in today's market. But Lou had that magic touch. He took that team that Pete had built, and let's give Pete the credit he deserves for that. He built that team with Murray Cook, Bill Burgess, with the general managers there, Marge Shot, of course. They built that team. And unfortunately, Pete couldn't see it through. But Lou, the, the, I mean, again, it goes back to when they hired Sparky, the perfect man for the job at the time. No other manager wins that World Series for the Reds in 1990 but Lou Pinella. He was the perfect choice. And I always think, and it's funny because that's one of the things over these last five years that I've seen a lot of people on the wonderful Twitter.com, all of the uh, uh, armchair general managers uh, talking about the team over the last five years. They're just like, man, you just get Sweet Lou in there and he'll light a fire and they'll win. And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, he had the personality to do that, but he also had the talent with which to mold. And I think that's where a lot right. of people, be, because like you said, the nasty boys we're talking about, I mean, it, it may not even be that hard to say this, but was that the best bullpen the Reds ever had? Oh, no question. I think if, if not, not only was it the best bullpen the Reds ever had, if you're talking top bullpens in the history of baseball, which is hard to do because bullpens have really been a more modern thing, mm. um, it's the best. I mean, top to bottom. And now, now the numbers might stay different. Um, if you look at other teams, but I'm not, I'm not talking about when baseball is a funny thing, because I know we get sucked into numbers a lot, but baseball is about personality, attitude, um, timing, luck, a lot of luck, but you have to have talent. And not only do you have to have talent, you have to have something. Uh, Randy Myers is going to come into the game though in 97, you know, 98. Norm Charles is going to come into the game though in 97, 98. Dibble's going to throw 100, 101. And every single one of them does not care about anything right. except getting you out. That's all they care about. They're not finesse. They're not thinking about, oh, I'm going to paint the corners here. I'm going to walk this guy to get to that guy. Give me the ball. They're just uh, they're animals out there waiting, waiting for their chance to come into the game. And Lou had that advantage. He had that to go to. And look how successful it was. Plus, on top of that, look who they were, they were coming into relief. Some of the best pitchers that the Reds have ever had in a rotation. Jose Rio, Tom Browning, Danny Jackson, Cy Young potential, Danny Jackson. Just and then of course you had the first half of Jack Armstrong, who was a phenomenal pitcher for part of the season. He kind of fell off the <laughs> fell off the charts there in the second half. Right. But such a great staff. So Lou had this you're right, the superstars. You have to have talent. And that's the, the point you make is absolutely spot on. In baseball, you have to have talent, but you also have to have somebody to steer that talent and know when to push the right button, which is why I think managers – I know people like to say that managers uh, – you don't even need a manager in today's game. It's all numbers, and you just put the lineup out there. But personalities matter in baseball, and you have to have somebody that's able to manage the personalities. That's why they're called managers. Exactly. And, and when you look at 
this team because everyone always calls them the wire-to-wire Reds because that's what they did. They were in first from day one, and they never gave it up. At, at what point during that season was it early? Was it was it not till the playoffs? When did it like click for you as a fan that like, hey, this team is gonna do something? I when they started off, I think what was it nine when they nine wins, I believe they started off the season just on a tear, and you knew there was something special because a new manager was in town. You had a new attitude. You when they went on that streak, and remember they're coming off of a strike, so the season started late. It starts in the Astrodome in the end of April. So and this was not your, your typical um, early April start where, you know, you kind of got the pomp and circumstance of that. It's the home crowd at Riverfront. It's, the, you know, another season here. They had to start on the road against a very, very, very good Astros team, and they sweep them. And then they continue their trek. And, of course, they go into their funk like every team does. You go into funks. But the, the moment I think really that – I remember as a fan watching at home and saying, oh, we have a shot here. This is a really different team, was when Norm Charlton knocked Mike Sosa on his keister. (laughs) (laughs) The place went nuts. I was watching that game on ESPN Baseball Tonight back when being on ESPN Baseball Tonight, where you do the the primetime game, that meant something. Right. And that game was the Dodgers-Reds game was the the prime. And I remember waiting all day like it was a Monday night football game back when Monday night football. (laughs) <laughs> meant something. Right. <laughs> there was something about that primetime game against the Dodgers where you're like, I cannot wait. We are going to take it to them. Finally, it's our shot. You know, this is it. This is we're going to prove something to a national audience. Here we go. And the relief pitcher with his satin '80s style Reds jacket on, crushing Mike Sosha at the plate, sent a message to everybody who was watching that the Reds are formidable. Yeah and they are not to be messed with. So I think that's the moment, and that happened later in the year. So they'd already bumped their slump of, of sorts, and they were kind of on their way marching towards their championship. But that game really, I think, sold not only me, but I think a national audience to wow these guys. And it was the weirdest thing. A relief pitcher barreling over a catcher was the moment. It wasn't a walk-off. It wasn't a strikeout. It was that moment. What was your feeling whenever they went into the World Series? Because I know that like, whenever you read about that World Series, they say, well, the, the Reds had no shot. The A's were on top of the world, and no one was giving the Reds a shot. What was your feeling as a fan right before that first game? Were you like, oh, man, if we just, if we just play good in this series, that's all I'm happy with? Or was it something else? Oh, it's See, that's, that's funny you say that because I was having this conversation with somebody at the Reds Hall of Fame not too long ago. They're a little bit older than me. I'm 45 years old. So I was 14 years old when the Reds went there. And I, as a 14-year-old that had followed the team as my lifeblood, my, my love, my hometown team, you think they're going to win every game. So when they're going in the World Series, like the A's, what do they got? They're nothing. <laughs> I expected them to sweep them. I, of course, you right. don't expect it really but your boyhood, macho, we're going to take it to the A's. And then if you have somebody that's a little bit older than me, you know, that was in their 20s or 30s, like, I don't know, Canseco, Maguire, Ricky Henderson, I don't know, Tony LaRusso, oh, I don't know. But, again, it depends on who you ask. It's, it's, it's a generation thing. I had, was full confident. My dad, not so much. <laughs> but me and my brothers, we knew going in that that was our year. We just got there. And, and of course, when Billy Bates – in the second game, 
scores that the, the, the run on Joel, Joel Oliver's hit, you know, and that ball is fair, and Cincinnati's ahead two games to none. They, the call will echo throughout history for the Reds fans forever. That moment, that's when you knew two 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 games to none. We're gonna we're gonna sweep. You just had that feeling as a, as a kid. Speaking as a teenager, that's what I felt like. That's awesome. I just I know looking back on these different teams, and and one of the reasons I wanted to do this series with you is because we we are coming up on 2020 where there are so many expectations, and the front office has really set up those expectations well with the moves that they've made. And and I just thought that it was well worth looking back on the championship teams of the past. And hopefully we've got us a championship team coming this year. All right. That's going to do it for us here on this Monday. Thanks again for listening to the locked on reds podcast. Like I mentioned at the first part of the show, if you haven't already done so hit subscribe on the iTunes, Spotify, Google play, Stitcher, whatever podcasting app you're using. Subscribe to the podcast. Also, follow me on Twitter at Jeff Carr with three F's and at Locked On Reds. Also, check out the Locked On Reds blog at LockedOnReds.com for even more content and save the Locked On Reds line number into your phone at 513-549-0159. For the Locked On Reds podcast, my name is Jeff Carr, and I'll talk to you guys tomorrow.